So uh, if you will, open your Bible up to Romans chapter 12. And uh, today we're going to finish out this little mini-series from the book of Romans, two sermons. Two weeks ago we looked at Romans 15, how we're to be one church for the glory of God. And today we're going to see how we're supposed to be one church for the mission of God. Rodney, it is good to see you, man. I saw you over there. Man, we've been praying for you. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to see how we're supposed to be one church for the mission of God. And we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. And, uh, man, this is an encouraging passage. I know it's going to be familiar to you, but I'll give you a second to get there, and we'll just dive right into it and read it. Romans 12, verse 3 to 8. Next week, we're starting a new series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first four chapters of Mark this fall. We're calling it Jesus Is. And uh, the second week, I'm going to be looking at Jesus' temptation. And you know, when Jesus was tempted by Satan to turn a rock into bread, do you know what he said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here we have the Word of God straight to us to feed us better than any meal could. And this is what it says. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members don't have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. And he who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Amen. Now there's an old adage that I know you know. Coaches sometimes say it to their teams. There is no I in team. There's no I in team. Y'all have heard that, right? We say this all the time to our kids. We, it gets thrown around. It's cliche. It's an adage. There's no I in team. But there is a nugget of truth in the phrase. And no team won a World Series or a Super Bowl because each of the members of that team were out there on the field doing their own thing. They were working together, each individual, in unison for a common goal. And I know that's the case, not just because I watched sports on TV, and not because I'm a great athlete, but because in college, I got really into fantasy football. And I know this is true. I remember me and my college buddies, the first time we decided we were going to have our own league, we got together in the conference room at my home church, we sat around the table with our laptops for our draft. And if you're not familiar with the concept of fantasy football, each player chooses a team of players from all the teams of the NFL, and then you compete against your buddies each week, earning points for yards covered or points scored or whatever. And so you get together and have a draft. And I showed up totally prepared. Had a spreadsheet. I had like my ideal round-by-round round goal. Because the deal is, in fantasy football, you really have to have some of these top-tier A-list athletes. You know, your Tom Brady's, your Derrick Henry's. Um, I was trying to think of a Cowboys player that you would want on your team, but I couldn't could up, come up with one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
I knew that would play well. But no, for real, you want one of these top-tier A-list players on your team. And so you go through and you try to get your Tom Brady's. But, but here's what I discovered, okay? I, over a few years of playing fantasy football, you really don't win games in fantasy football on the back of Tom Brady and Derrick Henry. Of course, sometimes it happens. But you really win games on the no-name wide receivers and tight ends that most people overlook. Some guy just goes off, it was a great matchup, and he scores a couple of touchdowns, and you win. That's the way it works. In fantasy football, every slot matters. I think a similar thing is true in the church. Every person matters. You know, most people look at churches and they think that that church is succeeding or failing because of the pastor they've got. And having been and currently now am a pastor, I feel like I can say to you that I, I don't think that's the case. If our church succeeds in its mission, it's not because Brad Mills was your pastor. It's going to be because the Spirit of God was working through us to accomplish the purpose that God has set us apart for. Everybody matters. Not a person is insignificant. And here's what I want you to see today. To fulfill our mission, we must serve together as one church. As one church. And we're going to see this from the passage we just read. And I really got three things I want you to see this morning. And the first is this. If you want to serve together, us, me and you, as one church, here's what we got to do. Number one is see ourselves clearly. We've got to see ourselves clear. That's straight there in verse 3. Paul says, um, The grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think with sound judgment. Sound judgment. The sound judgment is contrasted with an overinflated or too high of a view of oneself. You, you know people who suffer from this, thinking they're something when they're not. They're Mr. Big Shot. They walk in the room, they command it, but you know deep inside that they're not as big of a deal as they think. They're supposed to think with sound judgment, see themselves clearly. The verb Paul uses for sound judgment would have been really familiar to the Romans that he wrote the letter to. It's a Greek verb, sophronane, and it means to be rational or sensible. And it was a cardinal virtue listed by the ancient Greek philosophers. It's one of those traits that if you want to live a good life, a prosperous life, if you want to live the kind of life people look at and say, I wish I was like that person, you have to think with sophroneo. And it means to think rationally or sensibly. It was often used to talk about living within the boundaries set for you by your social status or by the customs of religious piety or the laws of a system. A person who thought they were a big shot and were above the law, could do whatever they thought, was thinking too highly of themselves. Instead, they needed to think with sound judgment, to think sensibly, or to think rationally. For the Christians in Rome, clearly Paul meant that they were going to have to let go of some overinflated views of themselves if they were going to be the people God had called them to be. And I think it's really interesting. He says, every one of you, every one among you, it's a, a universal exhortation. All of you, don't think too highly of yourself, but think with sound judgment, with sober judgment. Think sensibly. But i got to believe, and if you read the book of Romans, you'll see this, that while it's a universal exhortation, in the background are some of the subtle divisions that were rooted in 
the situation to which Paul was writing. Uh, there were some conflicts happening between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He had to tell the Gentiles in Romans 11 verse 20 not to think too highly of themselves, not to look down on Jews who are still following the customs of the Old Testament. And he told them just flat out, don't be conceited. Later in chapter 12 verse 16, he's going to tell the whole church, don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. His mom must have quoted to him the verse my mom always quoted to me. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what Paul's looking at. There are some conflicts and divisions happening in the church. And because of that, they need to remember, don't think too highly of yourself. Think sensibly. Of course, we saw two weeks ago that he had divided the church up into two groups. The strong and the weak. And if they were going to come together as one church, it was going to be through mutual submission and sacrifice. This is Paul's point. Don't think too highly of yourselves, but think with sound judgment. The solution then for them to get over this stuff, to get back to where they were supposed to be, was not to think of themselves in terms of Jews and Gentiles, or in terms of the strong and the weak, like in verse chapter 15, or other categories that they might have come up with, like the spiritually mature, the spiritually immature but to just think about themselves from God's perspective, according to the measure of faith to which he had given them. That's what it's all about. How are you assessing yourself from God's perspective? Not how big of a deal are you, or how far have you made it in your walk with God, but what has God actually accomplished in your life? And here's it. Here's, here's what it is. Paul wanted to see themselves as creatures of God's mercy and grace. Creatures of God's mercy and grace. Everything they had, even the gifts he talks about in verses 6 through 8, all of these things are from God. He's measured it out to them in a specific portion for them to use. And they need to see it right up front. Now the problem with this is that this is totally contrary to the way our world normally works. We're not in the habit of thinking about ourselves sensibly. Because we're told that we need to advocate for ourselves. And we need to look out for ourselves. We need to stand up for ourselves. We're told we need to market ourselves and sell ourselves. And anybody who's ever applied for a new job and had to fill out or design, I don't know what you call it, a resume, knows what I'm talking about. Because this resume is, they tell you, it's your first impression. You want to put your best foot forward. And so you artfully, skillfully, find that fine line between truth and exaggeration, and you make sure everybody who looks at your resume thinks you are the best thing and the perfect fit for whatever role you're applying for. Y'all been there, right? I think back to 2018, there's this church, Central Baptist Church in Luling, Texas, and I wanted a friend of mine to send my resume to the pastor search committee, and so he said, hey, freshen up your resume. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, well, use action words. I led, I produced, I conducted, I designed. I oversaw. Use action words. Make yourself sound great like you've done some really great things. And I, I got to believe it worked. <laughs> but you know, it's like, a how, was it 180 applicants to be the pastor of this church? What on earth? I know I wasn't a better pastor than some of those guys. I couldn't have been. I know myself. They were more qualified, more experienced, better educated than I am. It's not about my resume. You know what college kids go through? High schoolers. Y'all are thinking about college applications, are you? Not yet? Okay. 
Well, listen, I don't want to be your guidance counselor, but just let me tell you, you probably need to start thinking about that sooner rather than later because here's the deal. You're going to apply to these colleges and every single slot for students is up for grabs. Highly competitive. Are you going to get into the school you want to get into or not? And if you want to, you better make sure you what? You take the right classes, you do the right extracurriculars, you're involved in all the right clubs. You know, what are you doing? You want to put your best foot forward. You want to market yourself. You want to convince people that you belong where you're supposed to be. And it just stands to reason that eventually that gets brought into the church. That we start thinking about ourselves as something that we're not. We think too highly of ourselves rather than thinking of ourselves within the set boundaries and borders that God has laid out for us. I may not be what I wish I was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what Paul's saying. Think sensibly about who you are. And who are you? Who, who are you? I mean, think about what the gospel tells us. That before anything ever was, there was a holy and perfect God who was totally satisfied with himself. But as an overflow of the love that he has within him, he created a world. And on that world, he made people, each totally unique, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in their mother's wombs to have a personality and a genetic makeup that gives them blue eyes and brown hair and an ornery, you know, gold codgery personality. You know, God made you that way. Problem is, of course, that not long after he created those people, they rebelled against his authority and thought they were something that they weren't. They thought too highly of themselves and transgressed the boundaries that God had put in place. Because of that, they were under the judgment of God, and we've received from them an inherited sinful nature. So somewhere along the way, between 18 months and 24 months, I don't know when it happened for you. Uh, I can only speak for myself. I feel like as long as I've been alive, I've been a sinner. And I've been adding to those first sins of the first humans. Because of that, each of us stands under the judgment of that God. But God didn't stop loving. He didn't stop loving us. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life that we should have lived, to live sensibly within the boundaries that God had placed, and to die a sacrificial death on the cross so that anybody who repents of their sins and trusts Him with faith will receive new life, forgiveness of sins, be saved from the penalty that they really do deserve. And what happens when a person goes from that way of sinful living to living for Jesus is that they become a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that person receives the Holy Spirit, who apparently, our passage tells us, gives us certain gifts. And so you don't have to be upset that you're not Tom Brady or you're not Derrick Henry. Maybe in your mind, all you are is a long snapper or a placeholder for the kicker. You may not be important at all, but from God's perspective, you are infinitely valuable, specially gifted, and one of his children. That's who you are. So there's no shame in owning that. Saying that I'm a creature of mercy and grace. Everything I have comes from God, and everything I am belongs to him. So we need to see ourselves clearly. But number two, we need to see the church corporately. We need to see the church corporately. And that's what he says in verses 4 and 5. Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. See, for Paul, 
to see ourselves clearly doesn't just mean to have the right perspective when it comes to God, that we're creatures of God's mercy and grace. It also means to see ourselves in relationship with the people around us. And when he wants to explain this, he reaches for a common metaphor, common to Paul anyway, a metaphor he often uses. And it's really an analogy between the church as the body of Christ and the human bodies that you and I are so familiar with. He, he reaches this for this over and over and over. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. Over and over and over. This is what Paul thinks about when he thinks about us as the church, that we are the body of Christ. And I love this analogy because I think it perfectly pulls together the very real differences between us as people. You and I are not alike in every way. We're different. And that's okay. We can own our differences. But at the same time that it acknowledges our differences, it underlines the reality that we are a corporate thing, that we belong together. See, our bodies are complex organisms of interdependent systems. You know about the body, right? Some of these kids are, are still learning how to get that mind and muscle connection where they think what they want to do and then their body does it. And that's why toddlers, you know, have that cool shake and walk they do. They're still figuring it out. But by now, most of us should know, right, that we have a, a, a nervous system that you can touch things and feel, whether they're soft or smooth. Never forget my kids, little babies, we had those books, those board books. Um, is this my dress? Was that it? Is this my dress? Is this, I'll never forget reading Mary Jo, this princess book. Is this my dress? And this princess is looking for her dress. And on the front, it's, you know, shiny. No, it's too shiny. Is this my dress? No, it's too soft. Is this my dress? No, it's too smooth. You know, until you find the dress. Say yes to that dress when you find it. You're teaching them from early age, right? You have a nervous system that can feel. You have a respiratory system which can breathe. You have a, a circulatory system which makes sure that blood moves from your heart to all your extremities. All these systems work together. They're, they're interdependent. But they're also totally distinct. Your heart can't do the function of your brain and your nerves can't do the function of your lungs. Each system has its own particular function, and sadly, we know all too well that if one of those systems goes down, the whole thing's going down with it. Your body can't last without a heart. It can't last without lungs. It can't last without a brain. They're interdependent and distinct. But amazingly, in God's wisdom, He intricately designed our bodies so that these interdependent systems perfectly work together. So that when you touch something that's too hot, your nerves and your fingers send a signal to your brain, to your muscular system that jerks away in your lungs <gasps> to take a big gasp of breath and then let out a blood-curdling scream. It, it works together, interdependently distinct, but man, it makes up this wonderfully fascinating and intricately designed whole. And that's exactly what Paul says is at work in the church that each one of us is like one of these distinct and interdependent systems in our human bodies. Every last one of them has its own function, but the body can't be the body if one of them isn't there. He talks about this really clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, and I want you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 12, because I want you to see this. 
If we're going to see the church corporately, we have to understand what that really means. We're going to be in verse 15. First Corinthians 12:15 If the foot says because I'm not a hand, well I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, and there is one body. This is what we're talking about. To see the church corporately recognizes openly and honestly that we are distinct and different. And yet, the corporate nature of the church means that the differences that often create tension among us because you're not an eye and I'm not an ear and you're not the sniffer and the nose absolutely is part of God's wonderful design. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. We're not all eyes. We're not all ears. We're not identical clones. The picture that comes to me are those Asian armies that goose step in perfect rhythm, moving their arms and legs. What a monotonous and boring church that would be if we all thought the same and acted the same. Praise God that He brings people from all kind of different backgrounds with all kind of different gifts and talents and preferences and molds them into a beautiful thing that's one. It's like these windows. We got beautiful new windows. You can see out of them and they're energy efficient, but they're not colorful like these are. They don't make an impact like those make. And that's what God does in the church. He brings us all together. We're not all quarterbacks. We're not all running backs. We're not all wide receivers, but we're part of the same team. That's what it means to see the church corporately. That we're complementary and interdependent members of Christ's body. And God has put us all together for a reason. So that together we can strive towards the goal. That we can be on His mission with Him. So we have to see the church corporately. And when we do, we'll serve together cooperatively. All right? That's how you get there. If we're supposed to serve together as one church, you've got to see yourself clearly, see the church corporately, so that you can serve cooperatively. And the differences that Paul sees in the Roman church, and I think if he were here today, he'd look at us and say the same thing. He'd say, God is up to something beautiful in you. You just can't see it. That all those differences that you get frustrated by, that cause tension, are this. Gifts. We wouldn't call them that normally. We'd say they're obstacles to overcome. They're, what, pressure points. They're growing pains. He says they're gifts from God. And they fulfill different functions in God's church. And he, he outlines these functions. There are seven of them. And we could go into detail on them, one each week over the next seven weeks, and we could blast it open and gain a lot from it. We don't have time. We're starting Mark next week. It's going to take us two years. We don't have a week to wait. We've got to get started right away. But it's seven of these functions, seven of these gifts. And I want to give you a, like a, a high-level view and then zoom in. All right, I think these seven gifts are not an exhaustive list of the gifts the Spirit gives the church. Um, if you line up the spiritual gifts identified in 1 Corinthians 12, 
you'll see that these lists aren't identical, and each list has things that the other doesn't. Add that, Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about the gifts he gave, God gave the church. And you start to see that there are many lists of gifts. And we talk about the ones Mike read for us from 1 Peter 4. There are many different lists of gifts, and if you pile them all up together, you see there's overlap, there's consistency, there's differences. And so I think the list of gifts we have in 1 Corinthians 12 is representative of the types of gifts God gives the church. So they're representative. But second, I love what he does here. He says that it doesn't matter how you've been gifted or graced. All of it comes from God. All of these gifts are according to grace. These aren't natural abilities. These aren't talents. These aren't even learned skills. Primarily, they are things that are given to us by God, by His grace. And so you take that and you start to think, okay, what is really at work here? What I believe the New Testament teaches us is that when we become Christians, whether we're 5 years old, 35 years old, or 65 years old, it doesn't matter when you become a Christian, at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within you, to make you a new creation, and to give you at least one gift. At least one gift. And that gift represents your unique contribution to what God is doing in the world. That's what you're about. God created you for a reason. He did. He created every last one of you for a reason, and He's given you everything you need to fulfill that reason. And that gift is what we're talking about this morning. So every one of us has received one of these gifts. And this is representative, not exhaustive. You may feel like you're not represented here. Check the other lists, and then get back with me, and we can go from there. But I love the list in, First Corinthians, uh, in Romans 12 for two reasons. It elevates all these gifts side by side. And they're gifts that you probably wouldn't normally put together. I think about the first one is prophecy, right? If the one who prophesies in accordance with the measure of faith. Uh, what, what is prophecy? And you start to think of what it might have been like to be a Christian in the first century when a person stands up and says, thus says the Lord, and speaks without scripture, no scripture involved, he speaks a direct communication from God to you about your present circumstances. That's awesome. That's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. I wish all of you guys could prophesy. That's one of the greatest gifts you could imagine. To be gifted with the gift of prophecy and to speak God's word to God's people is awesome. You hold that up on a pedestal. But then you look at something like Paul gets down to at the end. Like serving. Or like mercy. And you start to create in your own mind a hierarchy. Hey, it'd be better if we all could prophesy. And maybe the prophecy thing happens on the platform when everybody's sitting in straight rows and looking up at the front. But the serving thing happens behind the scenes on Wednesday morning at 9.30 when you're digging through a bag of clothes and sorting it by side. You know, which is more important, which is more valuable to the mission of the church? The guy who stands up and speaks God's word or the lady who sorts through a bag of clothes? Paul refuses to allow the church to think that way. It doesn't matter how you're gifted. They're all elevated to the same level. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that's been given to us, let us use them. It doesn't matter what gift you have. You use them. So he elevates the gifts alongside each other, and then he teaches us to evaluate them, not in comparison to the others, but just solely on their own. You think, well, okay, if we're going to evaluate the return on our investment, 
between a guy standing up and preaching for 45 minutes and somebody sorting through a bag of clothes for 45 minutes, what's going to make a bigger impact in the kingdom of God? He refuses to do that for good reason because yesterday as we were wrapping up the clothes closet, I came over and was saying great job to the team because they just killed it. They just absolutely crushed it. What an amazing, there was a constant stream of people in that activity building. We were meeting needs yesterday. But I walk in about 11.45 and there's a person there talking to one of our volunteers and I hear him say, well, here's our pastor, Brad. So I start to talk. Hey, how are you? What's your name? We get into it. She starts talking about how God's been at work in her life, some events that have happened. She says, I, I just randomly got a postcard in the mail that on one side said, Jesus loves you. And on the other side, it had a stamp with my name. And she's like, so we're coming to church on the 22nd to Back to Church Sunday. We get to talking, and I just asked the question, do you know Jesus? She said, no. And I got to pull out of my bag a little gospel booklet and share the gospel. How do you evaluate? How do you plan for that? You don't. You don't evaluate your gifts in comparison with another. You're accountable to God for your gift and for who you are and for the moment you've been given to exercise. You don't get to think, well, do I make as big of an impact as so-and-so? I wish I could do what they do. It doesn't matter. God didn't make you to be them. You're not Tom Brady or Derek Henry. You're not Billy Graham, and I'm not either. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what it means to serve together cooperatively, interdependently, each one of us doing our task. We can't do each other's, but by the grace of God and by His Spirit's help, we can do our part. So in God's wisdom, we're not evaluated on the outcome of our giftedness or on the relative value compared to another, but just on our faithfulness to be who we're supposed to be. And that's why I'm telling you, true success in the mission doesn't matter who your pastor is. It doesn't matter if you look around and say, man, I wish we had this in our church. Or, man, we could go to the next level if we had that. No. Our church already has every resource we need to accomplish the mission God's given us, and I get to look at it every week. The men and women of God, who by His grace were saved from their trespasses and sins, made alive with Jesus, and are seated with Him even now, in the heavenly places, and who have the Holy Spirit of God within them, enabling them to be moms and dads and Sunday school teachers, volunteers at clothes closets, writing notes until your hands are tired because you believe that God wouldn't have asked you to do it if He didn't want to use it for His glory in this town. Do you want to serve together like that? I do. I look around and I think, man... Yeah, we shouldn't be blessed like this. We shouldn't have a church that looks like this. We shouldn't have the people that we have. We shouldn't have the resources that we have. And I come back to well, Brad Mills. Don't think too highly of yourself. You're a creature of God's mercy and grace. Everything that's happened isn't a result of your event planning or your strategic plan. It's a result of God's word taking root in a group of people so that he's empowering them to do more than they ever would have even th thought to ask. God is doing it. And I want to stay a part of it. I'm going to do whatever I can to keep myself here. Are you going to keep yourself here?
evaluating yourself, seeing yourself clearly, seeing the church corporately, and serving together cooperatively. I want to ask you a few questions, but I want you to bow your head while I do it. So you bow with me, and I want you to think about these questions to yourself. This is just between you and God. No hand raising, no eyes or nothing. And here are these questions. Number one, have you trusted Christ to save you? Have you committed to live your life for Him? If not, then today is the day that you should do that. You're not promised tomorrow. None of us is. You're given today. And what matters is how you use today. Every day counts. The Bible even says today is a day of salvation and now is the accepted time. So I implore you, if you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, make sure that today is the day that you do. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You turn from your sins, commit to living for him. He'll save you. And if you want to do that today, I'd love to talk to you after service. But here's the deal. If you do know Jesus, if you have trusted Christ to save you and redeem you, so that you're living your life for Him, then you've been given a spiritual gift to use at Central Baptist Church. So the second question is, do you know your spiritual gift? Do you know your spiritual gift? If not, ask God right now to give you clarity about that, to show you how you should be using your gift in this church. But if you do know your spiritual gift, let me ask you this third question. Are you faithfully using your gift? If not, why not? Is it apathy? I used to do that, but don't really do it anymore. Is it selfishness? Misplaced priorities? Busyness? I'd encourage you, if it's any of those things, to repent of them. God didn't give you the gifts for you. He gave you the gifts for us and for the mission that he's called us to. Is it because our church hasn't given you opportunity to use your gifts? And if so, please, by all means, come talk to me today. So are you faithfully using your gift? And if yes, keep up the good work. Look around. See the fruit. And don't grow weary in doing good. Commit yourself to serve the Lord harder than you ever have so that Jesus gets the praise as people come to faith in Him.